happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for Wednesday, April the 17th, 2019. This is episode 131. I am Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we have severe spring weather rolling in now with uh, not a chance of tornadoes, really, although there there always are with spring storms, but a large hail threat, they said. So I had to depart the front porch area as it is with my wife as we were watching these awesome scud clouds that kind of precede the storm come in and lightning in the west. So. The Google Home has been prioritized for this device, and I'm hopeful that we'll have smooth sailing. Things have been pretty pretty good lately with the old stream here. But joining me as always is Dr. Jason Neifer, coming to us from the land of snow and snow melt in Missoula, Montana. Jason, how is life in the great white, almost great, the great white north of the United States, we'll say. Yeah, that's pretty legitimate. So good evening, Wes. Um, uh, it's all good here in Missoula. It's been pretty rainy, like cold, rainy, gray the last couple of weeks. I did uh, go to Helena, uh, the uh, lovely capital city of Montana yesterday for uh, I spoke to a family member's uh, science sim class about my 2015 kidney transplant. And as it turns out, um, I ran into a blizzard on the way there. So it was literally, uh, um, you know, sideways snow going down a mountain pass um, in fabulous Montana. But that's that's what things look like in Montana during the springtime. Um, again, I'm here in Missoula, Montana, where I'm the assistant director and curriculum director in the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education and Human Sciences on the University of Montana campus and say that 10 times fast. And um, I'm excited to be here this week. Lots of interesting things going on in the news. And for those of you joining us for the very first time, first, welcome to the EdTech Situation Room. And more importantly, this is a podcast about taking a look at this week's technology headlines through the lens of education and educational technology. You can find all the links that we discuss on, a, on any given week at our website, edtechsr.com, where you will find detailed shows notes and usually a lot of links we didn't have the chance to get to on any particular week because there's a lot of tech news out there in just a single hour that we get together every week. So Wes, I guess I'm going to ask you to start because there's kind of some breaking news, right? Uh, There's some changes going on in arguably the most popular teacher connection method on earth. Well, I I put a little subtitle as we do over these article links that was a bit more dramatic than maybe warranted, but I I kind of think it 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 actually could happen. So my subtitled heading heading was imminent death of Twitter as we know it. But uh the articles to give shout outs for from yesterday on April the 16th, TechCrunch had an article Jack Dorsey says it's time to rethink the fundamental dynamics of Twitter. One of his quotations there was uh, talking about uh, the, the like button. You know, was that the right decision at the time? Probably not. If I had a chance to start the service again, I would not emphasize follower count as much. I don't think I would create likes in the first place. And so they're talking about, you know, basically how the platform is weaponized. Um, and I just, did just give a three-hour workshop on Sunday about media literacy, where we watched the fantastic first in a series of three videos by Smarter Everyday creator, uh, Destin, that it'll blow your mind. I, I think I mentioned it last week on the show, and we watched the first 18 minutes of it, basically everything before the the, the shout out to the, the show sponsor. And 
you know, Twitter, it, we've got some real problems. We got some real problems with YouTube. We got some real problems with Twitter. Um, Axios also had an article yesterday, how Jack Dorsey plans to change Twitter. Um, and it linked to the original Twitter blog post, which says a healthier Twitter progress and more to do. And what they're talking about is making Twitter so that you don't just follow people and it doesn't have, you know, numbers of followers, but it's really more of like Flipboard, I guess, where you're going to connect to topics of interest. That's the, the quote from, from Dorsey. Um, I, I, I don't know. I actually did log into my Mastodon account, which I've been laughed at by folks like Miguel Gulen for, you know, even, you know, kind of setting up a Mastodon account, but Mastodon is like Twitter, but it's federated. So that is like email. Email is federated. And although many of us in our schools use Gmail, the world does not use Gmail universally. Um, when it comes to Twitter, there's only one way to use Twitter, and that's to log on to their website and be on the central, you know, Twitter directory and, and Twitter database. And so, I suspect that we are going to see some changes. Um, one of the things, and I think I mentioned last week, I've, I'm, I'm feeling somewhat pessimistic and maybe I, maybe I shouldn't, but I don't know if the platforms can handle the weaponization and the bad actor exploitation that we've continued to see, uh, with the assumptions or the, you know, basic fundamentals that they have now, like YouTube, Anybody on unauthenticated, whatever, can upload as much video as they want. That's a given for YouTube. I think that is going to change. Now, that's not based on any articles this week, but I, but just that's my, you know, crystal ball reading my using my Palantir stone, which I happen to have here in Oklahoma City. Uh, and then the other thing is with Twitter. I I just I think they're going to they're they're not, they're using. I, I buy what what Destin says and smarter every day that they're using the best math mathematical algorithms and you know AI and computational uh what well, computational thinking machine learning and all of the the top you know minds the best that mo that money can buy right are working on these teams right now in silicon valley and they're not able to do that now that's not to say that the march of of AI is going to you know bring better capacity but it's such a cat and mouse game um, I think we're going to see some some basic changes. So, what what do you think, Jason? Are you are you Pollyanna? Do you think all of this is just for naught, and we really should get back to our you know 2005 optimism about Web 2.0? And let's sing Kumbaya right now. <laughs> um, I have the same concerns you do, and I think it's also problematic because I'm not really sure what the solution is here. And I think part of, uh, not to, to necessarily speak for you, Wes, but I would imagine that part of, of what you're struggling with is the same thing I'm struggling with, is that I can't imagine a world where we uninvent these technologies, not just because you can't, right? You can't uninvent um, uh, the, the space, but more importantly, the good that these technologies provide have to be balanced with regulating the bad or undesirable out of it, right? And that's the part that I have a really hard time with. Um, I am a little disappointed. Last week we reported on the podcast that a lot of people had warned YouTube about the uh, particularly violent videos and um, how it was being used to uh, to perpetuate uh, a bad uh, information and become a platform for people to congregate around the notion of 
of, of kind of anti-science and and kind of anti-social behavior uh, in broadly in cultures. But at the same time, like, you know, YouTube is the the, the, the most uh, impressive library of e-learning information that's ever existed. And it's the largest video library that 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 uh, the world has ever seen and continues to grow, not just with, you know, low value content, but extraordinarily high value content. And so for me, I think the big problem is that I don't know where we go next with this. Right. Like, how do we how do we fish out the problematic behavior and still keep the amazing things that the technology does to empower? Because unfortunately, empowerment is not always aimed at good, right? Empowerment empowers broadly. In fact, the prospect of the Internet and the prospect of technologies like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, for that matter, is that anyone can have a worldwide audience. Anyone can publish. So I... I'm, I don't know either, right? And it's funny because I feel like I'm actually, in the last two or three years, I've actually reintroduced myself to a lot of technologies that, uh, not that they were, were not on my radar, but they weren't part of my daily media diet. Um, and now I regularly watch a couple of, they're funky, but interesting YouTube channels. And, um, I'm got back on Reddit because there's some extraordinary communities of just shockingly nerdy people that I get along really well with, uh, that I can explore my, my unique passions. And so I think that's problematic. Um, the one thing I would mention is that that notion that Twitter becomes kind of a, a Pinteresty kind of thing, right? That sounds kind of sounds like what the, maybe they're going towards or some way to share and not necessarily to interact. That's fine, but people just move somewhere, uh, somewhere else, right? And to be honest, if Twitter decides it's now this you know, library of shared stuff and not interaction, then I guess I want to announce my new startup called Bitter, I guess. We call it, call it Bitter. You can go on to Bitter and send 280 characters um, to friends based on people you're connected with. Well, here here are some, some thoughts on that. Number one, one of my thoughts is, you know, where when are we talking about technology current events in school today, right? Probably, and Jason and I kind of have this mutual connection, probably in the debate team, right? Because yeah. debaters, um, you know, are debating their topic. And then a lot of times for speech teams, you know, you're doing extemporaneous speaking, you're speaking to current events. Huh, it just occurs. We were, I heard a, a comment in one of the sessions. I was just at the Atlas 2019 conference in Dallas the, the last four days. And, you know, someone was lamenting the the chilling effect, basically, that our polarized political environment has had on the discussion of current events in many schools today, because there's a lot of fear around, you know, kids and parents getting upset, perhaps that, you know, a teacher is espousing a particular view or whatever. And so... I, I don't have any research to back this up, but anecdotally, it sounds like a lot, there are, there are many, much, there are fewer conversations happening about current events today in classrooms. And, and that's a direct result of our polarized environment. So that's one educational connection that we really need to find ways to be talking about this. Um, and I won't try to go down a rabbit hole, but one of the best connections that was made at the conference was that, you know, civics, Digital citizenship needs to be more like traditional civics. Traditional civics doesn't just say, hey, don't do crimes, you know, be good, don't, don't do harm. But it teaches about the structures of how our government's set up and how it works and empowers people to be, you know, 
um, at, you know, vocal and, and, and involved. And so anyway, the same kind of thing needs to happen with digital, right. digital citizenship and the way that the internet works and, you know, the ways that we need to be advocating. Um, but the other thing is, you know, in the early days of the web, prior to these massive platforms, we had fantastic dialogue happening among educators and we found each other many times through our blogs and we use different kinds of tools, um, RSS readers, which haven't gone the way of the dinosaur. They're, they're still around, but we were using different kinds of tools and we were setting up our own, you know, planting our own flag, as it were, in the digital space with uh, a blog and with a website. And so I think part of the advocacy around here, and, and we'll see, but it needs to be to continue to advocate for the open web and for open standards and uh, for student voice and for students to learn how to appropriately share their voice. And I think that they're, um, you know, if let's say Twitter does go away and, and I'm, I think like Jason, using it on a daily basis to learn and to connect and to, I think for my mind to grow in, in very positive and constructive ways, I would be pretty upset if Twitter completely went away and even if it changes in the way that it's being you know, talked about. But I also do understand that, you know, changes are needed. One of the other articles I put in this thread, well, maybe I didn't put it in here. Oh, I think I put it under the tech correction. Um, this is also from TechCrunch on April 15th. Journalist Carol Codwallerder says the gods of Silicon Valley have broken democracy. Now, this is the author who basically broke the Cambridge Analytica issue, and she ended up working with um, with Wiley to, you know, Christopher Wiley, to, who was the whistleblower for Cambridge Analytica. And so I think she did a recent TED Talk, and so she's, you know, talking about the ways in which the platforms have been weaponized and they have not responded to that. So my predict, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen, right? But reading as many articles as we do and having these conversations every week, I think does give us a little glimmer of, of insight. And we know that regulation is happening in, in Europe and that there's lots of discussion happening here in the United States. Generally, what corporations do when they are facing the threat of regulation is they try to self-regulate and they try to convince the policymakers, hey, we're, we got this, you know, we're going to be able to take care of this. And so I think it is very reasonable to expect not only Twitter, but also Facebook. And we've heard announcements by, by Zuckerberg um, about this pivot to privacy, supposedly, and, and whatever. So we're going to see some changes happen on the platforms. Now, whether they're going to fundamentally change their economic model, right, which their economic model is surveillance capitalism. This is the transactional relationship that we have when we create a free account on a website like Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter uh, or Google, for that matter, uh, not as a, an ed, a student in a Google G Suite domain at school, but as a, you know, as an adult making your own account over age 13 or whatever, you know, you are agreeing to have a lot of information shared with that company. And then that company is going to monetize that as, you know, in, in many cases, their primary way of making money. So I think that's a, a prediction. I think it would be good to be able to talk with students about this. I also uh, went to some uh, really good sessions of, about critical media literacy and, and really encouraging students to ask questions. Um, again, kind of helping them think about that transactional nature of when they have a Snapchat account, when they have an Instagram account, what are they, how are they getting that for free? What are they trading? Do they want to trade that? Is there a limit to that? Um, I was listening to the latest 
This Week in Tech, which had Amy Webb on as one of their guests again, and she was, you know, talking about how, you know, we don't have any regulation or legislation right now on who owns our biometrics, who owns, you know, my face. Do I own my face? Do I have the right to control, you know, folks who are going to scan my face and then keep that, you know, unique algorithm in their in their database. There's a lot of things that we don't have. So I think we're going to see a combination of regulation and self-regulation by the part of the tech companies. Um, and I think we're going to see, you know, some our best efforts to try to address these issues, because as I think I might have said last week, I think I think the worst is yet to come when it comes to elections, when it comes to the ways in which there are nation states and other kinds of groups that are weaponizing these platforms. Um, things are only getting faster in terms of processing power and capability and with AI. So um, I think that it is a rather grim prospect in the near term. But hopefully we can return to some optimism in the long term. Um, and even if we did have these platforms which offer virality, and that's one of the big things that's different from now than like 2005, right. is you know I don't put didn't put something on my blog or anybody did in 2005, and then have you know mainstream media pick it up across the globe and suddenly it's it's a sensation. And that kind of, that element of virality is happening because these platforms are global. And because of the way that they're designed. So we will see, but it definitely would be things, good things to engage students in conversations. And if you're doing that in your class, kudos right. to you and uh, give us a shout out, you know, let us know in what context are you visiting with students about these issues? Cause it, th these are big, they're important. They touch on, you know, some fundamental uh, precepts about, you know, liberal democracy and autonomy and, and basic things like that. Well, and, and also, you know, Wes and I don't have as much direct access to students as we used to in, in previous uh, 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 positions in our lives. I'd love to hear what kids are saying about this, right? Like, I, that's the other piece of it, too, is that I, I know from uh, I, I know from uh, having family members that are below the age of 18 that, as an example, like kids aren't on Facebook, right? And that's, there's, there's research to go behind that. But so that particular part of this discussion is probably not as, as critical as other pieces. But if your main social media channel is Snapchat, for example, are you, uh, you are you as, as impacted or do you think about this as in the same way that someone who is a 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 something that is embroiled in Facebook um, and may have been part of or even duped by, you know, the extraordinary things that happened during 2016 um, regarding the elections? And I think that's a critical piece. And I'm a, a, a history teacher by training, uh, a history and government teacher by training. I think there is an extraordinary um, uh, 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 impact that technology is having in, in government. And Wes, I'm disheartened to hear your view of, of that and also the broader view that these things just aren't getting talked about as much because current events in general are being kind of scared out of the classroom and the current political environment. That disgusts me as a government teacher. I get why it's happening, but you know, these are the kind of things I think that we need to be having good, honest conversations about. So um, yeah, good, good stuff. So um, I, there was one other thing I think you'd also related to this, and I want to mention it because I, I, I uh, pinged you back on Twitter about this today. Um, the thread that um, you pinged me about regards to classroom discussion. Yeah, Mike Caulfield, who's at Holden on Twitter, 
had a, a pretty interesting rant about dialogue. I, and I thought, you know, with all your connections to yeah. online, that was, that may be interesting. What, what were your thoughts? Well, um, I, I would say that, that, that very broadly that, uh, when we talk about digitally based online discussions, they're generally terrible. And, and I have to say that the whole notion of the traditional, you know, 20, 25 year old model now, the, a, a discussion question that is not quite commentary based, right? It's mostly factually based or has just one or two answers that, that, that can be utilized and the, you know, answer or write one post and answer two others. I have really railed against that for years now because it's such an artificial construct that is really not bringing any sort of the interactivity that you wish for uh, in an online class that you may be pining for in a face-to-face class. And there's a couple of examples of that. First, uh, you know, at no point point is a successful discussion about you saying one thing and then waiting for your te- your classmates to say something else so you can respond to two of them, right? That's not a part of a face-to-face discussion at all. I'm also guessing that in the vast majority of discussions for teachers, ones they remember positively, there wasn't universal participation in the discussion. Um, and part of the reason why is because it's difficult to bring everyone's voice in if you have more than, you know, a half dozen, maybe a dozen students. And so often Oftentimes, a discussion can be of value even if only a third, uh, a fifth, uh, even a small percentage, a tenth of the students are actually doing the discussing. And my guess is, is that discussions that a lot of great teachers have remembered fondly uh, only had a third or less of their students participating. Um, so one of the things that I strongly encourage, and I'll give the shout out to Mike Agustinelli, my partner in crime over at the Digital Academy, is that he's done a lot of research in community of inquiry, which is a kind of a method of managing discussions um, uh, our good friends to the north, Alberta. There's a, a lot of uh, distance learning in the province of Alberta, and apparently, I think it's the University of Alberta that uh, um, is is doing a lot of the interesting work here. But there are ways that you can manage a discussion. They take more time as a teacher, but you can actually, you know, start off by writing great questions and then really managing the discussion. And I you know, like to note that because it has a lot to do with my day job and my passions there. But I do think that. Um, you know, a lot of the things that are challenging about discussing things online, uh, the reason why is because we're still struggling to find models that really work. And that one of the reasons why is that these are really labor intensive models, right? And, and I think all good teaching is a little labor intensive, right? You need to work hard to set things up to where, you know, you can uh, make sure the students feel prepared for lessons and then be able to let go when you need to and jump back in when you need to, which is also a great discussion as well. So I wanted to note that I saw that discussion going on today, very interested in the topic, but I do think that you know you can plan good distance learning, online blended learning discussions. You just have to manage it. And it often takes way more time than probably uh, uh, you would estimate, but you can usually you know, get good results. Awesome. Well, where would you like to go next? There are uh, numerous other categories that you have put in for tonight. So Yeah, so um, I would like to talk maybe some some uh, kind of nerdy tech for a little while here. First and foremost, um, let's talk a little Android. Uh, lots of articles about the Samsung, Samsung Galaxy Fold, which is the folding cell phone announced earlier this year at Mobile World Congress. Um, this is a $2,000 cell phone that essentially has a foldable um, and for those of you that are just listening to the podcast, I'm going to make some hand motions here. A foldable phone 
that has a big screen in the middle. And then when you fold it, it's also got an outside screen. So um, it's a kind of an interesting device um, to be able to do that. And I've seen a number of videos from reviewers and early adopters, and it looks pretty sweet, actually. It looks like a really decent phone, but I was very amused that despite the fact the folds, the, the uh, cell phone selling out, um, this morning's Verge had an article from an author, uh, 95 Google had another um, uh, uh, article about this, that screens are already breaking on the foldable phone, which is... Sad, but you right. know those things. I mean, that is like just like with Apple. I mean, that's the, those are the kind of articles that they're going to try to you know blast up right yes, to the top. So they are. the question is: is is that a common experience? And you know, it, it, to what degree is that outlier? Is that an outlier story? I mean, is right. there any way to tell at this point? There's not. And I did, I mean, I read both the Verge article in particular, I thought was interesting because it felt like it was fairly balanced. But, and, and I have also seen articles that one of the reasons why they didn't allow journalists to touch the phone at Mobile, Mobile World Congress is they were still in the middle of durability tests. And um, if you've ever been to an Ikea, you'll know what I'm talking about. But the, one of the funny things at an Ikea is they will have a setup there where an artificial rubber butt is sitting up and down in a chair and they try to argue that, you know, we test these chairs for, you know, 97,000 sits and, 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 and going, right, so that this chair will last a long time. And the machine I saw was literally, like, mechanically opening and closing the uh, phone to try to simulate what regular use over a year or two years will be. Um, of course, you know, if you're the person that, that adopts the $2,000 cell phone as an early adopter and a technology that has no market competitor right now, right, that there are other phones that are going to be foldable, but this is the one that's first broadly to market, then if it breaks right away, that's kind of shame on you, right? Because you kind of asked for that, but it will be interesting to find out how that plays out. Um, and I, I'm curious, Wes, does the form factor, the foldable, form, foldable phone form factor, lots of F and P sounds there, does that, is that tempting to you at all as an Apple user? No. Not really. I, I, you know, I'm, I am intrigued by the smartphone. I, or the, the smartphone. Yeah. Wow. I'm about to get my first iPhone. No, uh, the smartwatch. Um, I was, I, I listened to a Renee Ritchie podcast this mm -hmm. morning where he was doing a review of the, the fourth generation watch. And, and he was talking about, you know, people who are lamenting the lack of innovation, you know, and, and, and Apple. And others just, they need to look at the wearable market because that really is where there's been some substantial innovation. I, I think I'm fine with the size of, of my screen. Uh, yeah, my vision is not, you know, what it used to be, yada, yada, yada. But, um, you know, I've got a plus phone and I'm happy with that. And when I want something larger, I, I pull out my iPad. Now I'm happy for yeah. my iPad to get thinner and lighter. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I don't, I don't think this really intrigues me. So I, and, and listening to Amy Webb, one of my favorite futurists, shout out to Amy. You know, she's, she's noting evidently the trend that smartphone sales are peaking. And so what we're going to, to be seeing uh, is going to increasingly be, you know, wearables and, and things that we're going to have on our, on our eyes, you know, via glasses and things like that. Um, that that's where the real, we're, we're going to see a whole lot of stuff, you know, we're going to, we're going to see lots of, of, and that's what, you know, is wonderful about entrepreneurial capitalism and iteration and things like that. People are going to see what's going to hit the market, but in terms of the big broad trend, 
I'm not that excited about it. And listening to futurists like that, it doesn't sound like they're expecting there to be something like that that's going to really cause a, a major shift in terms of smartphone the smartphone experience. So I think that the speed increases that are being promised are a bigger deal, but those are also, I think, being pretty, a little, pretty overblown in terms of how quickly they're going to be coming to market and we're going to be seeing those. Um, so anyway, are you interested in a, in a fo- foldable phone? And it's only $2,000, Jason. So yeah, yeah. just a <laughs> little, little bit of extra income or a little money you just got, you know, lying around in the, uh, the, tr- the the old ashtray of, of your car, I'm sure. <laughs> the old ashtray of my car. Well, to be clear, two thousand dollars is also two airline tickets to Europe, and I think if it if it's the difference between keeping a trusty older Android phone that I'm just fine with and not going to Europe, I'm gonna stick with the uh the old trusty Android phone. I know it's gimmicky, right? Like there was an attempt. Uh, this was five or six years ago, and I I, I don't know if it was Samsung or LG, but there was a a two screen phone that was put out for a little while where there was two screens that you opened up like a book, like they're suggesting there. And Android was pretty meh, and um you know like that. I and apparently you know. It, Android itself is starting to develop. Google's putting some things in Android that allow the foldable phone to be a real reality. But I know it just seems like future for future sake. And um, I'm not, you know, super excited about that prospect. But I do want to point out one other quick Android article. Uh, the 95 Google reported yesterday that uh, uh, there is new marketing, worldwide marketing information to suggest that the Google Pixel um, and and so Google phones are now the number three uh, cell phone brand in the United States behind Samsung and Google. Or I'm sorry, behind Apple and Samsung. And that is a really big note here because uh, for the longest time, you know, Google was only in the cell phone and for that matter, laptop business uh, uh, only to provide uh, kind of benchmark devices, right? Things that manufacturers could see as a uh, kind of a goal device or, or a, 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 a and I forgot the word I was searching for, but I'm sure it was very profound, um, but a device to, to be a model to other manufacturers. And since releasing the so-called Pixel phones um, three years ago, 2016 is when the first one was released. It looks like they're really you know, starting to come into their own and sales are picking up. And so that's really exciting. And, uh, you know, I've been an LG guy for a while now. I can't really tell you why other than I've been happy with the hardware. Um and um, I know I, I think I'd be interested uh, if, if, it, if they're starting to get that longevity and it looks like they're going to stay in the market and they get Android updates for a long, long time after release. I think the Google phone uh, might be something I'd go to next. Yeah. And I'll say, I mean, I, I don't anticipate myself jumping back to Android, but, you know, when I did, I was using really the low end, almost burner quality, you know, Android phone. When I went to Egypt um, a year ago, November, for and I, I I used it for nine months, so that was a fairly long use time. Yeah, but I I do think it would be instructive to to use a flagship Android phone, which you know at this point would pretty much be either a, a Samsung or a Google model. So I'm really glad to see that. You know, I think we really benefit as consumers when there is robust competition in the marketplace, and I um, you know. 
think there, there continue to be really interesting differences between the ecosystems. Each one has different affordances and, and benefits. Um, I do think that in our current climate of, you know, threatened regulation and everything, I mean, Apple stands in a great place in terms of its privacy protections and the fact that it does not primarily generate revenue off of user data in the way that, that certainly Google does and, um, you know, f- Facebook and, and many other companies that are in Silicon Valley. So it, it'll be interesting. Do you, do you have a smartwatch now, Jason? And what, are, what's been your smartwatch trajectory? Um, well, uh, I've, I've been a Fitbit guy for seven years, eight years now, and I'm currently wearing a charge Two. what I like about this particular device. It's not really a smartwatch. It's more or less, uh, just counting steps for me and I can add some smartwatch functionality, but that's pretty meh for me. But what I like about this particular device is that the uh, bands uh, are removable, and the last two Fitbits I had died because the band itself, which was not removable, fell off, and then I, you know, used some Sugaru, which is a kind of a uh, 21st or 22nd century product that uh, it's moldable plastic that turns into hard stuff, and then wore that around for a little while until it got ridiculous, but this has been a, a good buy for me. I did also have an LG... Urbane, which is, uh, I still dig out every once in a while. It's three years old now, um, which is a, a Android Wear watch. I think that's called Wear OS now. Um, I like the device, but to be frank, it, 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 my chief goal there is counting steps. What I liked about the Urbane was that, uh, it had, um, it had uh, two-factor authentication uh, worked into it, so the talk to my phone, and so if I was signing in to um, uh, 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 into a Google account and it wanted to double-check to make sure if it was me, I could actually do that from my phone. So I felt pretty Dick Tracy there. I like that. I thought it was a pretty neat way to do that. Um, I'm in the market. Uh, I think at some point for uh, maybe another wearable device, but I think the problem is is that I mean every Apple Watch user I know is super happy and still wears it. None. I think you may need to try the Apple Watch, Jason, just in the interest of you know fully <laughs> understanding the ecosystem and the capabilities. Well, and I will say the two guys in my office that wear one, uh, the boss wears one, and uh, Mike in my office wears one. Uh, Mike is obviously the the nerdier one of the two, but my the boss has had an iPhone since we started. Um, um, or since I, I knew him uh, uh, starting in 2010, and he's wearing his every day. And the fact that it's got staying power to kind of the uber nerds and the the more uh, uh, kind of typical consumer, I, I think there's something there. But yeah. then again, I was supremely happy with my LG uh, Watcher Bane. I just, well, but I just kept going back to the Fitbit. So I yeah. Okay. Hey, let's do a couple of security articles. So Ars Technica today had an article, the wave of domain hackings besetting the internet is worse than we thought. Uh, they also linked to an older Brian Krebs article. We've mentioned Brian before. He's one of the most for one of the foremost security researchers, um, in the world today. This was an article from February 18th on his blog. Oh, that should be 20. Yeah. 2019, a deep dive on the recent widespread DNS hijacking attacks. So this is problematic um, for a lot of reasons. DNS is one of the undergirding technologies of the entire Internet. And so um, the article in Ars Technica, I think it's in Sweden, describes how this attack um, is on one of the root DNS servers of the entire, you know, Internet. And what they're doing is they're attempting to 
redirect domain names which are known and trusted and use them to compromise uh, people's devices and to get access to information. So there are several different Syrian government servers that are part of this current attack. And uh, like when we, I think, talked about the, the Mirai botnet and the that was also an attack, I think, against DNS. It was against Dyn. But, you know, these are very sophisticated, uh, possibly nation state level attacks, meaning in order to have this kind of sophistication, you know, this isn't just uh, Joe and Schmo in their garage somewhere uh, trying to figure that out or in their bedroom. <laughs> Although amazingly, the Mirai botnet was just a couple, you know, college students who were trying to run Minecraft servers and, and wanting to take out their competition. But anyway, it we don't know. There's a whole lot, of course, to the dark web and to uh, malicious attacks and things like that that we don't know. Um, you know, we need we need, by the way, our our representatives in in Congress and even at local levels to understand things like DNS, things like. Um, you know, how, how does the Internet work? Um, that, again, gets to this idea with digital citizenship and civics of like understanding some of the basic workings. I'm not saying everybody needs to be a network engineer and everyone needs to be able to, you know, do a packet capture and read the data. Goodness gracious, I've tried to do that. I, I took a little uh, part of a webinar about Wireshark <clears throat> about a year or so ago as a tech director. I was like, I don't want to learn this. You know, this is like, kind of like learning Chinese. I'll work with consultants and other, you know, network engineers who understand it in depth. But anyway, these are, are troubling attacks and, uh, just further highlight the very hostile, uh, nature of the internet today, which, you know, is, is increasingly visible in mainstream media through, you know, the fact that not only are, are politicians and, and elections be, being subject to attacks. I mean, we're also experiencing this personally. I had one of our fourth grade teachers last week come up and, and ask me what her mom should do because she had clicked on some kind of a link for coupons. But then there was a pop-up, she thought, live person with a Russian accent who was telling her that her computer was compromised. And, you know, she had to, to pay the money in order to gain access to it again. I mean, these things are touching our personal lives. So... Jason, have you all made any changes in the last six to 12 months with respect to security uh, where you're working uh, or have you with family members as a result of what's going on? Or have you already sort of been on the on the, the track with password managers and multi-factor factor analysis and other things that you haven't made that many recent changes? We've had more discussions uh, as part of my day job regarding this and are starting to give more direct Commands is probably not the right word, but advice to our teachers about good kind of technology security and, and password hygiene and those things I think are pretty important. Um, I, um, I've also doubled down on making sure I use a unique password on every website that's very long and is not based on any words. It's a randomly generated 20 character password. It effectively means that I don't remember any passwords anymore, but I do use LastPass, the password manager. I think, Wes, I think I saw in some of your tweet traffic the last week, you were talking about uh, how great LastPass is for you as well. And I think someone else recommended 1Password, which I, my understanding is also a great tool. Um, but I think that's kind of where we're at right now. Right. And, uh, you know, there are um, 
Uh, there's a lot of, of, of interesting podcasts out there about kind of tech and culture that talk about how we are really in an extraordinary time period because of the shocking number of really, really, really nasty uh, actors out there that are doing nasty things. And I think the, you know, domain hijacking issue along with a half dozen other security uh, pieces is all pretty problematic. But, uh, you know, one thing I would also tell you, and I know Wes does this, which is amazing and extraordinarily laudable, and I would recommend others do it as well. If you have people on your campus or school that can help parents understand these things, bring your parents in and talk to them about this, right? Because as it turns out, there aren't a lot of community resources for this. There, um, I do know that some interest groups that deal with certain segments of the population, I know the AARP has become much more vigilant about helping uh, seniors uh, uh, build in good cybersecurity into their day-to-day practice, uh, going, going along with their... Um, Going along with their overall mission to to help seniors make good financial choices, I think that's a wise move. But this is an all hands on deck thing, right? And as more and more stuff is on the web, right, and as more and more of our lives require the web um, uh, for everything from scheduling driver's license uh, uh, exams to uh, accessing critical information about your life. Uh, this year, we were uh, required to go online to get a special tax form from the state of Montana because they're not printing them anymore. It was the last year's refund uh, form that's part of filing your federal taxes this year it was not offered online, and there was an alternative that you you had to, like they suggested, you go to a library if you didn't have a computer at home. Um, and, you know, it's 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 a it's a important piece of what we do. So I think being um, proactive about that is pretty darn important. You put a couple of privacy articles, <coughs> pardon me, privacy articles in there, including that facial recognition machine. You want to chat about those a little bit? Yeah, I would strongly recommend that there's two amazing articles from the New York Times this week. And by the way, um, I, I subscribe to the New York Times online. Um, I subscribe to uh, three newspapers now, and um, they're all uh, pretty, uh, it, part of it's because I want to fund good journalism, but the New York Times has been delivering in, in spades as of late. They have a lot of long-form technology articles, but they had two this week that were pretty extraordinary. Um, the first one is that um, um, they, um, the New York Times, uh, uh, decided that they were going to build, um, cameras, right? Cameras that had off the shelf facial recognition software on it. Um, and then, um, um, uh, they were going to use that facial recognition software to see if they could build like a database of people that were kind of walking by and, and as it turns out, um, without much to do, they were able to identify people that they could then find online, including a professor. I think he was of sociology that they found a picture of this guy online. And based on searching images and databases that you think about, you know, the people that or most people have a, an image of them somewhere online that's identified like in a Google image database. Um, they were able to identify that person based on someone who just been walking by one of the cameras that, that they had set up for this purpose. And, uh, you know, like that's like next level, uh, you know, government intrusion dystopia kind of stuff, right? But the important piece here was that this is stuff built with off the shelf hardware and software, right? You, like you being everyone with just a little bit of tech savvy can build this. And so if you don't think that there is some risk uh, going on here or that we don't have things we need to be having conversations about broadly in our democracy, that article 
I think is going to do it. Um, so Wes, will you be putting your tinfoil hat on tonight and not going out into public again? No, I will not. But you know, I have put that on in the show before, so I'm sure that's part of my <laughs> undeletable footprint in the cloud. <laughs> so, but uh, I'm not. I don't. I don't know if we have. Did we have an article about this? There was. I think there were. These were guys in Russia who had put together this incredible database that was just quickly searching um, their you know, essentially Facebook and because of API access and whatever, I mean, just in a few seconds, they were able to turn up, you know, pretty incredible results with millions of records and things. And it was, you know, it was the AI, it was, uh, you know, being able to do image recognition. One of my creepy experiences was last week, a year ago, February, when I was in Ohio for their state tech conference, um, they, you know, had some students out that were doing wonderful little sort of like poster sessions about scratch and games that they made. Anyway, I took, you know, got permission, took a picture with some students and one of their names popped up in my Facebook, not a, a friend or a contact. I was like, Whoa, that's weird. I don't even think that's supposed to happen. So I think there's a lot of inevitability to that side. Right. And if we're going to travel internationally, I think our chief executive pulled the trigger for like 20 us airports or something like that recently that, you know, everybody's being logged facial recognition wise. So the road to biometric identification is, uh, you know, pretty much happening. Although we're not living the dystopian reality that they are in China today, you know, and then these credit school credit, not, they're not credit, but it's what it's like social, your social score and things. And I can also I'll maybe say these words and then I'm going to be on a watch list in China because, you know, our, I'm sure our podcast is going to be top on the, the AI, you know, let's transcode all their, all their uh, spoken words to, to text. Maybe it already happens. But anyway, the, the, the uh, Uyghur minority that is in Western China, which is severely persecuted, you know, there's a, a satellite imagery showing, you know, thousands and thousands of people in uh, relocation, what may about to concentration camps, uh, re-education camps. It's just, it's horrific. And, and because the Chinese government really is fearful and opposes uh, religious minorities, especially that are organized. Anyway, um, the ways in which they're deploying their AI facial recognition is uh, pretty scary. And so it's tough to watch and we want to... You know, think again, I think educate students about that and hear what their voices and their perspectives are, um, because some of these things aren't necessarily in mainstream media. And it just might not be unless we're talking about current events and specifically the ones that involve technology. It may not be stuff that, you know, students and or parents are, are very aware of today. Yep, absolutely true. And then one other quick other New York Times article, and part of it's because I, I really had no idea this was happening. Um, this is from the New York Times on April 13th. Uh, tracking phones, Google is a dragnet for the police. As it turns out, uh, Google apparently has a database uh, of location, date, and time information that would be based on if you have a locations, uh, location um services uh, services thank you on that uh law enforcement can apparently utilize uh um uh search warrants for to find out who might have been near a location during a crime and this particular article talks about someone who was uh uh not guilty of a crime that was ensnared into this 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 trap of sorts because at least a device reported him as um a you know in a certain location or another 
Um, and I honestly had no idea this was happening. In fact, many times in the past have said during trainings about privacy that I had general trust for Google because I felt as if that a multinational company with that much at stake would not be prone to abuse that data. But I'm uncomfortable knowing that that exists. Now, I got to say that I get a ton of benefit off of Google knowing where I am at, right? Like that's that's the part that that I'm having a really hard time wrapping my brain around because what's the calculus there, right? Like I I get that um I get that if they have the data, they might be obligated to share it if they get a, a subpoena for that. Although, let's be clear, there's no way the founders of the Constitution, when they were writing um, the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, were uh, <laughs> were, were envisioning this, right? Like you would have a device with you 24-7 that was you know, talking about your location amongst a lot of other data points that was recording in a database, right? So we, we got to talk about this in a modern con- context. But I was pretty blown away by that as a general uh, general concept. So, uh, Wes, I, I'm assuming, did you have a census was happening? I, I actually heard about this article also listening to that Twit podcast tonight, which I didn't finish. But, you know, I think we reported on our show a number of months ago, you know, something like this. But the but Google was fighting it, I think, and, and it, because it was going to be you know, kind of this big dragnet instead right. of just saying, hey, I want, you know, judge, here's a warrant. I want this specific information. They're saying, let's let's get all the data for all of the phones, you know, that were in this particular area. So, again, as I've said with some of the other things, I think there is a bit of an inevitability to this. But I also think, uh, you know, here's a shout out to developers and thinking about how we're going to re-engineer some of the basic communication technologies um, that, uh, that we just take for granted, but like phone numbers, right? We had somebody at school recently who got a phone call from themselves, a robocall from themselves. Well, that's because their specific number was being spoofed by someone, you know, who's robocalling. I mean, phones are very insecure. We've talked about articles before about how if you're using two-step verification, um, the weakest way of really doing that is through the phone. There's other methods with, with apps and with uh, USB keys and other things that you can do that are much more secure. And so I also think, um, you know, what is the alternative to, you know, using your phone and having your information transmitted to your service provider and, and through Google or Apple or whoever is running that, that app? I know I've seen some interesting things about mesh networks in Boston, probably MIT students involved, you know, that have to do with how you could have a data network that was allowing basically people to set up nodes and you'd have connectivity, but it wouldn't necessarily be through an ISP. It could be more democratized. I don't know. I mean, there is a phone that you can get. Was it called the black phone or something? I mean, it's, it sounds like it's a, a black hat hacker phone, but basically it's something that's not going to give all your information uh, away and it's going to be, have a lot more privacy protections, but I don't know. I, I just, I don't think that all of this was nefariously um, designed by the surveillance state overlords I think a lot of this has been the confluence of a lot of different technologies. But just as we've seen in school, right, with with web filtering and the power that that gives central authorities to really 
just have have incredible say over what is viewed and read or not viewed and read by students and teachers. Um, and then the rise of surveillance cameras on, on campuses and things like that. We're seeing that with nation states, you know, the ways in which they can use technology. I just, I basically think the power of these tools is being appropriated in the name of surveillance and law enforcement in fairly dystopian uh, ways. And I think I might have heard Amy Webb say this. I'll have to think of who, who it was, but I think it was her. You know, she, somebody, oh, this was, I think it was on a World Affairs podcast. They were saying, we just, we don't have, you know, image, we don't have paradigms in our heads for this kind of stuff. Um, people will say totalitarian, but totalitarian is violent, right? And, and that was like, I guess, with the rise of fascism in the 30s and the 40s, um, People didn't really have the headspace of, of understanding what that was. And so anyway, these are new paradigms. One of our other speakers was George Siemens uh, at this conference. And oh my gosh, you talk about a fire hose of kind of mind-blowing concepts and ideas. Um, hearing him talk about how the, the information landscape has shifted and, and our assumptions are just are, are flawed and we're, we're really struggling with the ability to even you know, comprehend what these things, how these things are changing and what, what it's going to mean long-term. I don't know. I, I, I think that the, the rapidity of this change, the speed and velocity, you know, it just continues to get faster and therefore, you know, it becomes more and more difficult for us to be able to, you know, process and understand, Hey, hence shows like this, conversations like this podcasts, you know, I think parent university sessions, which is what we, you know, call some of these things for parents at school. It's important to be able to process this change and think about what it means um, because we don't know and the policymakers don't know. And we, we do need in this, you know, uh, relatively free and open representative democracy that we have um, we need to be wrestling with, with these kinds of issues. So, yay, I'm glad to be here, not because we have all the answers, but because it gives us a chance to, to wrestle with some really important questions. Absolutely. Well, Wes, we are nearing the top of the hour. Is there anything else you want to fit into this week? Um, what about the, the Wikipedia article? Uh, you put that under, under the tech correction for the New York Times. You want yeah. to do that one? Yeah, let's talk about that one. Uh, it's worth jumping in and having um, – uh, uh, ha- or reading the, the full article, and, and I guess I would mention one more time that the, the tech journalism going on at the New York Times has been, I think, really impressive. But basically, this article goes into detail, and I have a, just a touch of experience with this, is that um, there is, obviously, it's a uh, Wikipedia, the editable encyclopedia, has an extraordinary network of volunteer um uh, volunteer moderators that that go and um, uh, go and, and and check for edits and then also uh, kind of enforce the broad community guidelines in Wikipedia. And as it turns out, uh, that uh, it's not always a friendly conversation. In the same way, the thing can turn pretty negative uh, uh, in social media. The same is absolutely true about uh, uh, Wikipedia. And as it turns out, uh, there there is a lot of issues there. One of them is um, 
Uh, one of them is uh, the gender disparity between men and women that, that edit. Uh, there's an exclusionary um, uh, attitude amongst a lot there where it's a very insular group that, that doesn't like accepting outside views. And that can oftentimes impact the quality of the articles. And my personal experience here is that um, I used to have to maintain two different accounts. I had done very minor edits on Wikipedia. But one of the things I used to do every year is I would go on day one of talking about research and I would edit the Wikipedia in front of students, right? Because a lot of them didn't know that the Wikipedia, in fact, I think a lot of people still don't know that the, that the Wikipedia is user editable, right? And my way of doing that was to kind of troll the Helena Montana article by adding my name to the notable Helenans, right? So I would go and add my name and I would call myself a noted teacher or something ridiculous or magician or illusionist or something that would delight, you know, the 16-year-olds <laughs> in the world, right? And, you know, the next day I would get a... Uh, I would get, it would be edited back, right? And, uh, my, uh, uh, once in a while I would get a nasty gram from someone calling themselves the Wikipedia cop and they would have a little graphic there that said, please stop editing the Wikipedia with garbage. Um, but like, Again, that's part of the process and it's fine, but, you know, for a while I was also using the same account that I was doing legitimate edits on, and then I they stopped allowing me to edit with that account, even though there are some topics of which I have, you know, at least... You, need, you needed a burner account for that. That's exactly it, right? And that's what I started using in regards to that. But, uh, you know, it's also... You know, again, empowerment is awesome, but empowerment empowers everyone, right? It's tough to to direct empowerment to just the good actors in the world. And, you know, especially with a volunteer organization like Wikipedia, um, uh, you know, the people that passionately spend time there can sometimes become a detriment to the platform itself. And so super interesting article, and I, I highly recommend uh, taking a close look at what's available there. Awesome. Well, here's a little segue. We can uh, jump into our Geeks of the Week. So uh, one of uh, the things that is pointed out in, in one of my Geeks of the Week is what a, what a great model Wikipedia has for determining the uh, validity and accuracy of information. And uh, my first Geek of the Week comes from um, Mike uh, Caulfield, Dr. Mike Caulfield, and he has written a, an openly licensed attribution only textbook as part of the American Democracy Project and then something called the uh, the uh, Digital Polarization Project. And about 250 universities and colleges across the country are participating in this class that is seeking to uh, develop greater media literacy skills for college students. And so the book is accessible at webliteracy.pressbooks.com. As a side note, I'm pretty excited about Pressbooks because I've been looking for a platform uh, for some other publishing that I want to do. And it is a fantastic platform. I think you can pay like 99 bucks, have them host it forever. It reads really well. I've read most of this book now on my iPad, but you can read it in on whatever you know screen that you would like. So that is fantastic. And some of the vocabulary there, I guess I'll go ahead and drop in the link to my, my workshop as well so that you can find uh, that, which is called Filtering the Exaflood Strategies for Media and Information Literacy. Um, that's a three-hour boot camp workshop that I did on this past Sunday at the Atlas conference. And um, of all the research and, and things that I found, and I, helped, I did a whole bunch, you know, getting ready for that, 
uh, this was, I would say, resource number one. And some of the things like um, how we need uh, students to do lateral uh, lateral searches, meaning instead of just diving deep for the about page and, hey, I got to fi figure out, is this source credible? Um, we need students to to search laterally or read laterally on the web. And, you know, basically everybody needs this, right? If you're using the web, if you're on any kind of social media, you need digital literacy skills that, that, that basically enhance your toolkit to be able to tell whether something is valid and should be believed or whether it's completely fake and created by bots or, you know, some kind of malicious actor. Uh, and so there's a lot of very specific activities and, and tools. It is a course ready to go, Jason. So if somebody for the Montana Digital Academy is looking to do a media literacy course, there you go. Here's an openly sourced textbook that's ready to go. And then my second quick one is just my Mastodon account. I will probably continue to uh, play with this. Again, the Mastodon is, is like Twitter, but but it is a federated situation where anybody can run a server. I happen to be on the Mastodon instance, mastodon.cloud. And you can find me at mastodon.cloud slash at wfryer. And those are my Geeks of the Week. How about you, sir? Thanks, Wes. By the way, I've almost signed up for a Mastodon account, but I can't quite pull the trigger. So we'll see how you report back to us. So uh, one of my favorite podcasts from the Gimlin Network is Reply All. It's one of their earliest podcasts. It is the Geeks Geek podcast. Uh, two pretty geeky guys explore topics. My favorite one, and I think I mentioned this in the podcast, was that they actually had a uh, actually had a, a scammer that was trying to push a fake security audit onto a computer. They happened to cold call the the studio where they were recording the podcast and they went as far as going to India to find the guy that they were working with and amazing podcast. But I want to point out this week's episode, uh, which is kind of oddly named, but the Roman Mars Mazda virus is the name of it. And they do a lot of uh, Collins, um, um, uh, which is uh, related to, to like getting, they call it like super tech support or enhanced tech, tech support where you can like, they, they won't just try to answer your tech question. They'll dig into really weird ones, but they had a call where a guy had the 99% invisible podcast, uh, the Roman Mars podcast from um, PRI, the public radio exchange. And the, the podcast, every time he tried to play it was, shutting down his car audio system and then resetting it. And so they went through and it's, it's just delightful times 10 and, and nerdy, but uh, the, they went through and tried to do other podcasts with weird characters in the name. And I, I won't sp uh, uh, spoil uh, the, the result of what ended up being the issue, but if you really want to get a sense of what real kind of like troubleshooting grit looks like, it is a masterclass in, you know, fig trying to figure it out over time. And eventually, they talked to the guy that created the code. They found the guy that wrote the code for the Mazda uh, 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 entertainment system and then discussed with him uh, the situation. So Reply All, episode number 140. You can find it wherever podcasts are, are, are available to you. It's pretty great and a delightful episode, including a bunch of fake podcasts that they created to test this guy's car and they brought in like popular stars to do it. And I was laughing so hard. I may have had a tear in my eyes. So good stuff. There you go. You don't listen to those. You get those podcasts every day. Well, I am W Fryer on Twitter, W Fryer on Mastodon.cloud, but I won't be posting there a whole lot. However, I did post a new podcast on Speed of Creativity, 
which you can find at speedofcreativity.org. I am trying uh, weekly to send out a newsletter, which includes a, a tip, a text, a tool, and a tutorial. And so those are archived actually on my website. You can find those, but uh, you can sign up for my newsletter for that. And yeah, that is uh, where I am primarily. So how about you, Dr. Neifer, when you're not here on Wednesday night, sharing your knowledge in the EdTech Situation Room? Um, I am not on Macedon currently. I am on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach. I also work with Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org, uh, where a, a number of the NCCers are at We Day in Seattle this week, a great event focusing on service and, and kind of a global perspective. So check out information there. Um, I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy. Uh, we're on Twitter at MontDigCAD, uh, uh, moving to a brand new help desk system this week. So that's what's going on there. We've adopted the Salesforce uh, service cloud and we'll be using that as kind of a new industrial help desk. And so that's what we're working on there. Um, Wes, let me ask though, what is this thing that we're doing? This would be the EdTech Situation Room, our weekly opportunity to dive into generally technology articles from the past week, although we'll sometimes go back in time a little bit more. We are live streaming on YouTube, and we want to give a shout-out to Peggy George, who has joined us live in our back channel, and invite anyone who would like to join us at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, yada, 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 whatever that is in your time zone. We are live on YouTube. You can find us at edtechsr.com where there's a link to our YouTube channel, as well as what Jason said, the links page that you can find where we have all of the links. And as usual, there are numerous ones we did not have time to chat about tonight, but you can check out as well. We'd love to hear from you. Please reach out to either of us on Twitter. You can use the hashtag EdTechSR. And there's even a handy-dandy form that you'll generally find, I think, at the top of the show notes for all of our episodes that lets us know a little bit about you, our listener, and anything that you particularly resonate with or would like us to talk about. So we want to thank you for tuning in and invite you to not only, of course, listen to this episode, but also check out past episodes. We have the archived uh, 32 kilobit MP3 versions as well as 30, 360p audio versions if you don't want to just subscribe and watch on YouTube. So until next week, we encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe. We'll see you in a week. Good night.